this book is not necessarily about a Chinese restaurant, but is actually about the relationships of people who happen to work in a Chinese restaurant. And yes, they're shaped by that context, but we're all shaped by what we do in our jobs, our daily lives. So I think that is ultimately relatable. Hello, everyone. This is Mengfei Li from Beijing, China, and welcome to this episode of The Missing Piece. You are listening to the special series of podcasts, which will cover American Embassy Literature Festival in Beijing, China. And just a quick reminder for everyone: The Missing Piece is dedicating some episodes to invite amazing American authors, speakers, and international business experts to share their work. Across the Contemporary Literature Festival, today's guest Lillian Lee. She's going to share her new book with us. In addition, we will ask her about her inspiration in writing and her insights on writing for international audience. Now, Lillian Lee is the author of the novel Number One Chinese Restaurant, which was an NPR Best Book of 2018 and longlisted for the Women's Prize and the Center for Fiction's First Novel Prize. Her work has been published in the New York Times, Greta, One Story, and many more. Lillian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Well, again, before we getting into about your book, it's called a Number One Chinese Restaurant, and I want to. Can you tell us a little bit about your writing background? When did you start actually the writing?、Uh, how can I say the inspiration or the motivation? And how 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 did you know that this was something that gonna make sure that you know you have the strength or talents for it?、Hmm. So, is your question when did I decide I wanted to be a writer, or when did I decide I wanted to write this book? The first one.、Uh, so, the first one. Yeah. Okay. So, I think that you know, I I think a lot of writers、um, can. Remember loving writing even from when they were a young child. That they loved stories, or that they were always scribbling in some kind of journal. And I would say that's pretty close to what my childhood was like.、Um, I would hear stories from my parents now saying that I was always crying except when they put a story on tape for me. Wow! And as soon as it stopped, I was crying again. So、um, I think that you know a lot of writers have that similar kind of origin story of always loving. Books and reading,、um, and eventually realizing they wanted to do it themselves. So I think that the moment when I switched into wanting to actually write for an audience, for people besides myself, to read my work, I would have to say that was actually thanks to this phenomenon called fan fiction.、Mm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with fan fiction, but for anyone who's not, that is basically. When you love a book or a TV show or movie so much that you want to write,、um, you know your own version of it. So, I grew up with Harry Potter, for example, and I wanted to write about Harry Potter characters from when I was ten or eleven years old. And so, I would write these long chapters about Harry and Ron doing their own adventures with my friends and posting them to this fan fiction website, where suddenly people I'd never met. We're giving me reviews and saying this is great. We want to read more. I mean, of course, I'm a ten year old, so it、mm. wasn't good. <laughs> But the experience of strangers reading 
really pushed me uh, to move forward. And then as I started to take more creative writing classes, having teachers help me along the way, I switched into writing my own fiction, writing about my life and my experiences. Uh, and that was you know, pretty much the track that I went on. So it really did start off with a personal love. And then as it grew more public, I think that was probably the push that I needed to um, continue to pursue this as a public um, way of expressing myself. Lydia, that's a very interesting way to put it. Now, again, something that really brought my attention when you mentioned that when we actually begin writing, I think one of the best ways, number one, is to tell stories because stories are able to reveal emotions and build attachment with audience, you know, regardless what language you speak, but you can see the sense of urgency or you can see the sense of struggles within the stories. But the second one is about personal stories. And I, I, wanna, I want you to dwell on this a little bit more or maybe elaborate a little bit. Can you tell us, because you said you were going to or you were writing stories about yourself or something happened to you. Can How, how much, I think the better question would be, how helpful was that? Because we know that sometimes it's rather difficult to share with people that the journey that we want went on or we experienced because we're afraid that other people will say, ooh, this is too rough or say, wow, this is really, really the type of intensity you know, I wasn't expecting. How did you know that you were going to balance the language or balance the intensity when you're creating this personal narration? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I, it definitely varies from author to author, and for me, I find that it does require a certain amount of distance from the experience, whether that be the amount of time that has passed, or how I am different from the character, or what position the character is in versus what position I was in. So, for example, I really would struggle if I were to write this number one Chinese restaurant book about a inexperienced waitress who is at a Chinese restaurant uh, working in order to pay for graduate school and stays for three months, uh, which is roughly what my experience was. Mm. And instead, I wrote a book about the lives of, the, of a family that owns a Chinese restaurant and their longtime employees and what happens one summer when this beloved establishment um, disappears and this restaurant family has to rebuild their lives without um, this uh, structure in, in their in the center of their world and so you can see that you know my personal experience is actually quite distant from the actual books uh, experience and the characters and what they go through and really the only string that attaches it is that I happen to know what a general Chinese restaurant kitchen looks like you know, I could remember uh, what it was like to serve people, mm. and I knew the basic routines of a, a waitress at a Chinese restaurant. So in some ways, I had this background, and that was what I bring into the books. And I think that's often what is the case when I write uh, stories, that what's personal oftentimes just colors in the background. It makes me feel like I know the world enough that I can start inventing my own, um, you know, creative uh, characters and storylines. So I think that for me then, personal is just there to give me the confidence to be creative. Mm. 
Well, Lillian, I like I really enjoy the word creative because we know again you use the Harry Potter as an example, especially writing for fiction, you know, or writing as a fictional uh, characters, and because on one hand, if we are being too creative, people worry that hey, listen, that's not real, and I don't know how the characters are going to keep on uh, keep. Uh, how can I say, keep the audience engaged? Like, for example, I'm sure you have or you might have read The Chronicle of Narnia, okay? And that was just one of the amazing stories in the fictional ones. And not only children, but adults are so attached to it. So on one hand, people could say, wow, that was just so outrageously creative because you could never imagine that. But on the other hand, there are some really deep lessons behind this. And we see, oh, the battle between the righteous and the devils. So Lillian, back to you is, how would you define creative? Because again, you know, this is the uh, literature festival and there are a lot more authors. Not only they're Chinese, but also they're international authors and they try to be creative and they try to have this international sense so other people who don't speak English would also appreciate this. But it seems like it's so struggling and so difficult to be creative. How would you balance that? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I'm so interested in thinking about what does creative mean. And I think just thinking it through right now, it is very much attached to that word create. And so, for example, creative doesn't just necessarily mean fiction or made up, but it can because you're creating a world. You're creating something that didn't exist before. But I would say with nonfiction, with essays, there's also creativity because you're creating a form. You're creating a chronology for the events that happen when you're giving information to somebody uh, versus when you're holding back. And so you're still creating an experience for the reader, even though you're not creating the actual events that happened. So I think... What is a struggle about creativity is the sense of building. It is difficult to build something uh, from either nothing with fiction or with an existing structure that you're trying to rearrange and make your own. Mm. So I think that that is also why you know there's so many drafts that are required, so mm. many um, chances for you to reach out to friends and teachers and say, can you read this and tell me, did I create something that is actually worth reading? Uh, because... When you're building something and you don't necessarily have the blueprints, I think that's also part of creativity is not always knowing what you're going to build. Um, a lot of times you'll build something that is not structurally sound or that is ugly or that is not interesting to anybody and then you just have to create again. And so there's also the sense of creativity is the sense of recreation, trying again and again and again. Um, and from that, you know, the friction of going over something again and again, you end up creating um, something that many people can enjoy. So I think those are all the ideas that come to my head when we're talking about what is creativity. Mm. Lillian, let's actually talk about your book. I think that's a very good point that we're going to uh, touch on your book. Your book, again, is called The Number One Chinese Restaurant. Mm -hmm. Now, you, I know you mentioned a little bit um, when you answered the previous uh, 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 The question is, it's about the family. But when I listened to your description a few minutes ago, and the only two words that I could thinking that would be American dream. Mm -hmm. If we know that this is the country that, uh, I mean, I might uh, paraphrase that what President Obama said before, is as long as you're willing to work hard and any person shall deserve the success. So in other words, 
no one's can promise or no one is ever going to promise that it's going to be a smooth ride. It's going to be a smooth journey. You have to experience all these ups and downs. But here's the question is about a family, you know, start uh, in a restaurant or in a business and stuff. Why not doing something big? But don't you think that this is something that people already know that, you know, you started from nothing or you start with a smaller business and eventually that could grow into a kingdom. Again, I mean, I'm again, I'm right here kind of play the devil's advocate is why couldn't you pick something much more profound than actually creating a family started with this? What is the reason for that, Lillian? Yeah, no, I love this question because my mom asks me that all the time. <laughs> like, why don't you write about bigger people? <laughs> well, well, you know you what always, they say. Well, you know what they say. Great minds think alike. So yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like, why are you so interested in ordinary people, ordinary lives? Right. I think that my interest is feeling that the specificity of an ordinary life often gives you a bigger sense of the universal. Mm. That more people actually ultimately relates to an ordinary life um, and then extrapolate into kind of these grander, more profound insights about what is family, what is American dream, sacrifice, immigration. So I think that I was really interested in a Chinese restaurant in part because of, you know, so its history in, um, in America and how it is culturally one way that people who have never met a Chinese person in their lives still know about Chinese culture because there's actually more Chinese restaurants in America than McDonald's, mm. Burger King, Pizza Hut's combined. Like wow. it's not even close. Wow. So many Chinese restaurants. And at the same time, thinking about, for example, the title number one Chinese restaurant, that title is a little bit of a, a kind of a double-sided joke. And in fact, when I tell people in America the, the title, sometimes they'll, they'll laugh a little bit. Mm. And it's very interesting when they laugh because suddenly the question is, well, why did you laugh at that? You wouldn't have laughed at number one French restaurant, Italian restaurant, Greek right. restaurant. There's something very specific about the Chinese restaurant and its status in the culinary world, but also in the American imagination that makes it so that a you know, a statement that is grand, like this is the number one Chinese restaurant, is actually something that you think is a joke. Mm. And so on that kind of larger scale, what is the Chinese restaurant as a cultural institution? It's this, you know, this feeling of something small and low status, and yet it's everywhere in America. It's maybe even the, one of the most American parts mm. of America. was really fascinating to me. But then when we're thinking about like that family structure, the ordinary lives, American dream, you know, I've always been very interested in, um, you know, how does the American dream actually translate over time? And so mm. this is actually a multi-generational story. That's we have right. the original family that opened the restaurant, the parents, Bobby and Feng Fei, um, and what their dream was, which was, let's make something out of nothing. You know, we come to this new country, and we have ambitions and dreams, and we want to really become powerful in the way that we can with the limitations that we have. But then, of course, there are sons, Johnny and Jimmy, who were raised in America and have you know, all of the uh, extra privileges of being American, like facility with the language, education in the public education system. They look at their parents' American dream, and they think that's so small. 
Mm. You know, everyone is just laughing at us. The Chinese restaurant has no power and status. It just has maybe money so that we can be comfortable. But our idea of the American dream is something closer to respect and power and influence. Mm. And so suddenly they're trying to transform their parents' original dream into their understanding of that American dream. And in the process, ultimately creating this huge tragedy that ends up affecting everyone that works with them. And so I think the final part that feels big is this larger idea of family, because it's not just the family that owns the restaurant, it's the people that have worked with them for 30 years. Mm. And what does it mean when you have people who are your employees that you've basically paid for your, their entire lives and sustained them, but they've also sustained your business? And what do you owe those people? You know, what ultimately do your ambitions cost if it means making it so that they no longer have a job? after they've given you 30 years. So I think what's interesting is that with all these kind of smaller relationships and lives, it actually ends up speaking to all of these bigger, profound questions um, that are kind of difficult when you start off with this question of like, I'm going to write about ambition. It's a little harder. You start with a big lofty idea. Well, Lillian, you know, as you were describing the family and the journey that, again, different people in the book, you know, when I think about the Chinese restaurant or even think about the immigrants that they migrated to this country or I mean anywhere you know they started from nothing and they were hoping that through their own uh, how can I say efforts and determination that something greater is gonna turn out and uh, the first word I could think about is the word tenacity so which means that you you have the power to go on or you have the strength really push yourself and motivate yourself to, to move forward but meanwhile, Leland, this is something very interesting. It's about the word humility. I grew up in the family or I grew up in the culture despite the fact that I live in the States for a, a more than a decade. And But still coming back to the culture and coming back to the Chinese restaurant is we always say stay humble. You know, you, you, you ought to be a server or you ought to be a servant to others. So you shouldn't talk about your success or you shouldn't talk about your struggles because that's part of it. Again, everyone is doing the same thing. So so the next question leading to you is, throughout all the different characters, which one do you think is more important in their spirit? Is it more about their success or is it more about this cross-cultural, um, how can I say, challenge? You, you are born, I mean, this character... The people were born in one culture and now they migrate to another country. They really have to shift themselves or they have really to adjust their ideas or postures in order to fit in. How would you balance that? So is the question, like, how do the characters deal with the cross-cultural yes. differences? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I think that's such a great question. Um, and what's great about having such a large cast of characters is that each one is dealing with this question differently. So you have Johnny, the older brother, who is kind of like the golden child of the family. And he is very interested in this idea of kind of assimilating, right? making it so that Chinese food becomes more palatable to Americans mm. and getting respect that way. So he kind of represents that stance that um, Chinese should be more like Americans in order to get the respect they deserve. And then Jimmy, who's the younger brother, very rebellious, uh, he is obviously <laughs> the exact opposite. 
from Johnny. He thinks, you know, let's force feed Americans jellyfish and duck feet until they finally recognize that wow. our cuisine is just better. <laughs> it's been around longer. Uh, we are more innovative. You know, he is very interested in, at the same time, also challenging traditional Chinese cooking and making it his own. He feels kind of stifled by both traditions. Mm. He wants to create this fusion and gain respect out of a kind of belligerence. And I think that's also a very interesting way that I've um, understood cross-cultural uh, integration is through something a little bit more aggressive, but also innovative. Um, and then we have uh, Fang Fei, uh, who is sort of the more conservative side of let's keep everything the same. It's working. Right? We, we have a restaurant, it's successful, um, maybe we don't get the respect we deserve, maybe we could make more money, but why be, uh, why ask for more mm. than what we want? And I think that also represents maybe um, the sense of if you go into a new country, you don't have the safety net, and success always feels like it could go away. Right. And so she represents that side, the conservative side of let's just keep our heads down and do our work, and we be grateful for what we get. Mm. So I think, you know, at least with those characters, they represent all the different parts of the personal debate. Now, Lillian, when you create all these characters in the book, the number one Chinese restaurant, here's something very interesting, and I try to ask the same question to every author that I talk to is, is there any of the character that you put in your book actually as you are writing and you suddenly have this spark moment. You feel like, ooh, I feel like I'm writing about myself. Or I, feel, <laughs> or I feel like I'm writing about someone that I know or maybe someone in my family. Again, because, again, these characters are fictional, but all of a sudden you develop this feelings towards the person. You're like, hey, I really need to pause or I need to stop for a second because I am getting a little bit emotionally attached to the person, even though I know it's not real, I know I am trying to be creative. Was there a moment for that? Yeah, I think that's definitely true for me, that oftentimes I know when a project that I'm working on has a chance of becoming finished, mm. when I feel like if I were to leave those characters, I would be abandoning them. Wow. I would be leaving their lives unfinished. And there's a, not exactly a responsibility, but a feeling of, well, you know, I can't let these people who feel real to me just, you know, end. Mm. And I think that is why I'm often chasing for that moment where somebody crystallizes as not just the two-dimensional character, but someone who can actually lead me and surprise me and tell me what they want to do. Mm. Um, and I think that is definitely what happened with this book. Um, and I think every character had a moment either from the very beginning or when I was trying to write them, that they showed me who they really were. And so to the question of do I ever recognize myself or other people in the characters, I think that, at least for this book, what made a lot of characters feel real. So I mentioned that I happened to work very briefly in a Chinese restaurant um, before I started writing this book. And um, I'll give you one example of you know, what sparked these characters for me was actually just a gesture mm. uh, between two living people. So in my book, there is a 
two longtime employees. There's Nan, who was a waitress but was promoted to manager. Mm. Uh, and there's Ajak, who is a longtime waiter. And they've all been with the restaurant for 30 years. Uh, they've known each other. They've been very good friends for 30 years as well. And so they're not based on anyone that I met at my restaurant. But I did happen to see this exchange between uh, a longtime manager who had once also waited tables and this much older waiter who she was friendly with and the older waiter was you know just kind of missing messing up you know mm. he just couldn't move as quickly he was leaving trays and forgetting them and after he had just forgotten a tray on the bar and had to be kind of like wrangled to go and get it and serve his customers I just saw this manager kind of like sigh and just say like, to herself, what am I going to do? And I understood in that moment what she was feeling because she was essentially reckoning with the idea that she might have to fire this man that she has known for years. Mm. This person that she used to work side by side with, but because of her promotion, now she is in charge of. And she's like the middleman between the family and the employees. And she might have to sacrifice someone that she has a relationship with. And I took that gesture and I wanted to explore it even further. And so that's why Nan and Ajak came about. And that's why they feel real to me. It's that feeling of when a personal relationship that is challenged by um, a work relationship. Well, you know what they say, um, again, if I may borrow one uh, a line from a lyrics or from the song, it's most people agree to say what hurts the most is because we are being too close. You know, so so you know, so in other words, I don't remember who who uh which song was that, but anyway, you know, it's just always about the people who are so close to us, and again, over the years that we develop this friendship and develop this relationship, these are the hardest ones, really, to how can I say to to tell the truth, you know, with a good intention, but meanwhile, we 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 have this sense of guilt. And not to feel guilty or not to feel bad about what we're doing because we know desperate time for desperate measure. But anyway, all right, um, Lena, I got two more questions before letting you go. I know you're very busy. The next question is, uh, again, going back to the um, international audience, there's a lot more people who are interested in reading a book like yours, the number one Chinese restaurant. So let's just say for anyone, for someone that who might not have the full grasp of the restaurant in America, or who might not understand that the dedication or the effort that you put into the book, specifically for each character, how 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 could your book or how could you help them to understand actually what you're trying to present in this book? So, is the question um, how my international readers relate to this book? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a really great question because, you know, when I was explaining what this book is about, it does feel very local. You know, it's very specific to not just America, but actually this place, Rockville, Maryland, which is in some ways its own kind of Chinatown within America, yep. um, just set in the suburbs. And so somebody who's international, who, um, you know, is not familiar with Chinese restaurants within the American context, um, does not have a Chinatown because mm. the entire lives are uh, filled with Chinese people. That's right, with, <laughs> right, like, oh, oh, with burgers and pizzas and probably not Chinese people, you know. <laughs> right, what are they going to get from this book? And I think what my answer would be is actually what inspired this book 
was the relationships, that every character that came out of this book came out not alone, but already attached to another person, if not multiple mm. people. And so really, this book is not necessarily about a Chinese restaurant, but it's actually about the relationships of people who happen to work in a Chinese restaurant. And yes, they're shaped by that context, but we're all shaped by what we do in our daily lives. So I think that is ultimately relatable. And I think that what is very specific, like I said before, ultimately feels universal. And so I think that the relationships that this book looks at, for example, Nan, who I mentioned before, has a son, Pat. Mm. They came out to my mind uh, because I wanted to look at a mother-son relationship that was stressed by working hours and being a single mother and also just the general feelings of resentment and guilt and blame and love that happens between a parent and a child. And so I think that while Nan's relationship with her son Pat is stressed by the fact that she works in a Chinese restaurant all hours and has not had the chance to take care of him, it's ultimately more about the relationship than the circumstances mm. that she's going through. That's what's relatable, and that is what people will be able to look at and say, I can recognize that with my own family. My mother's like that, or my father's like that, or my brother is like that. And, you know, similar to Johnny, Jimmy, rivalry is really their relationship. The older brother versus the younger brother. And that's, you know, such a familiar story that I feel like, again, looking at the relationship, not just keying into the fact that they happen to run a restaurant together. But anytime you think about brothers who have to work together and compete together at the same time, I think that a lot of international readers will be able to see themselves and their families in that structure. And I think that is what would be my pitch to the international reader. You know, I think it's very interesting about the character Jimmy. And I, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you mentioned the character just to say, hey, you know what? Uh, this is part of the Chinese restaurant and, you know, eating the duck feet or the pig's feet and we're not going to change anything, okay? Believe me, I actually met a lot more, quote, Jimmy in my life while living in, in America to say, hey, you know, listen, this is who we are and why are we supposed to change? And why are we supposed to, how can I say, be flexible, you know, to cater others' needs? And, Linda, the last question is, Currently, can you tell us quickly, what are you working on in terms of writing or what are your next steps and anything exciting going on? So we'd love to have you uh, back on the show in the future. But tell us what's going on with you right now. Are you writing number two Red Chinese restaurant or you know, number 13 Chinese restaurant? So what's going on right now? <laughs> yeah, I, I love that you've met so many Jimmys in your time. I think that Writing-wise, I probably am also closer to a Jimmy. You know, I want to write what I want to write and not necessarily translate or cater to, um, you know, the broader mainstream audience in America. Right. And so what I'm interested in writing about right now is I'm working on a novel also set roughly in that Rockville, Maryland area, mm. uh, which is an area, like I mentioned before, that has just a higher population of Chinese Americans than mm. really most places in America. And I'm very interested in because I grew up with a lot of Chinese people, I'm actually very interested in the kind of power dynamics within the Chinese American community, mm. right? Outside of thinking about how they relate to their white American neighbors. Mm. Uh, but very interested also, and this might be familiar to you, just how competitive and how much achievement oriented uh, the Chinese American community can be. 
um, especially if the parents are also very well educated and came on education visas. So I'm very interested in looking at the community that I grew up in and the kind of people that are shaped by those forces of growing up in competition with their friends. Mm. Anytime their friend succeeds, they have failed. And what does that do to a psychology over time? And so I'm looking at a childhood group of friends who have graduated into the recession. So suddenly these overachievers are now thought of as losers in the community because they wow. can't find a job. They had to move back into their parents' houses. They only really have each other. And suddenly, a girl from their past who was kind of a superstar of their generation, she's also come back under very mysterious circumstances, um, and she tells them that she wants to make a documentary about their lives. And in agreeing, they end up setting off a whole chain of reactions. So that's what I'm working on right now. Uh, it's tentatively titled ABCs, uh, which you know, I'm sure you're familiar with that term, American-born Chinese. Chinese. Very good. That's uh, By the way, Lillian, that's a very, very interesting name. And now, as a matter of fact, the first time I've heard of ABCs was actually when I was 17 and I moved to the States. And then the first question that people look at this face would say, hey, are you ABC? And then to me, you know, that was the question to say, excuse me, are you from Mars? So so I, I was very much dumbfounded by this question. But again, Lian, that, that looks or that sounds a very interesting topic. And um, again... Lillian Lee is the author of the book, Number One Chinese Restaurant. So I strongly encourage everyone, if you're listening, if you're watching this interview, please go to Amazon and the book is available, you know, get a copy of the book and really get into this. Because again, I, I, I say this to uh, Lillian before interview is I was very much interested in this book. And, you know, again, if you go to Lillian's uh, website, if you uh, visit her website, there is so much compliments and appraisals for, for the book. And of course, the most important thing is it was a very, very touching and it was genuine. But again, Lillian, thank you so much for being on my show and thank you so much for talking to us under this literature festival. And we wish the best luck to your current project and we love to have you back on the show. And please let us know as soon as this ABC is available. Thank you, Lillian. <laughs> thank you, I will. <laughs>